OBS Orbit, the podcast for Open vSwitch users and developers. This is episode number 46. This episode is an interview with Chang Kim from Barefoot Networks. Chang is deeply involved with the P4 language and P4.org, which are key to the exciting topic of programmable network data planes. In this episode, we talk about one particular application of P4 for in-band network telemetry. In case none of that means anything to you, then keep listening. Chang will explain all of it. On to the interview. Welcome, everybody. And uh, in this episode of OVS Orbit, I'm talking to Chang Kim from Barefoot. Uh, Chang has been at the forefront of the, the P4 uh, programming language uh, since uh, as, as long as I've uh, known about it and been involved in it. Chang is going to uh, talk to us today about P4 and INT. But before we really jump into that, uh, Chang, do you want to tell us uh, anything more about uh, your, your background and, and what you work on and what you're interested in? Sure, sure. Thanks for the introduction, Ben. So um, I'm a networking guy, and um, I uh, have research background, but have been working in the industry for the past about 10 years since I graduated from school. And uh, yeah, I'm working at Barefoot now, and also am working actively for the P4 Language Consortium. And P4, as we will probably discuss, P4 is the uh, domain-specific language to design the network data plane. And uh, before joining Barefoot, I worked at um, uh, Microsoft Azure. At that time, it was called Windows Azure, but now it's Microsoft Azure, uh, Microsoft's cloud service division, and was responsible for designing a lot of uh, software-defined networking solutions as well as the physical data center networks as well. Oh, that, that's that's great. I hadn't noticed the rebranding from from Windows to uh, to, yeah. to Microsoft. That, that yeah. that's interesting. Yeah. Um, so you've already said a little bit about uh, P4, and uh, we've had other OVS Orbit episodes about P4. So mm-hmm. probably a lot of the uh, the listeners uh, know a bit about it. But uh, to to you, what uh, what what's significant about P4? Uh, what mm-hmm. uh, what was it that uh, that uh, that sort of motivated its, its creation, and mm-hmm. and where where is it going? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. So P4 is just a language, or like any other languages, it's just a tool that enables people to express and um, realize their own new ideas very easily. But the question, more important question here is, um, what kind of language is it for? So to understand what P4 is, we also have to briefly talk about what network data plane is and what kind of situation the network data plane has been so far. So networking system, of course, is built with control plane and the data plane. And the control plane is basically nothing but a you know general purpose uh, operating system with some networking applications, right? You know, routing protocol demons. The data plane is actually the key piece here because it's usually implemented in ASIC, uh, very high-speed ASIC, typically these days working at multiple terabps or gigab or billion packets per second throughput with bounded latency. And uh, the control plane um, sort of controls this data plane, but all the functionalities that are built in the data plane so far has been, you know, built in fixed function, meaning that the hardware engineers actually had to understand the all these different networking data plane protocols like IP, VLAN, MPLS, QNQ, 
And they actually had to implement this in hardware description language, like, you know, VHDL, uh, Verilog, VHDL yeah. and um, RTLs. And uh, as you can imagine, those kind of languages are very different things than any high-level languages that software guys like us usually use. And then they have to worry about, you know, clock cycles and frequencies and then synchronization and even physical designs at the end of the day. And the chance of making bugs is very high. But at the same time, also, the cost of bugs is, you know, humongous. Once you make mistakes, it lasts three years. Right. And I, I yeah. even remember talking to yeah. a, a startup that was building a chip, and uh, they, yep. they managed to get everything working in their, uh, in, yep. in their first big go yep. at it, except for the module that was supposed to help with debugging and troubleshooting. Exactly. And I, I think yeah. that, that, w- <laughs> that, that startup failed, and I don't know that that torpedoed them, but it, yeah. it must have helped. Yeah. And, and so this, this hardware-based uh, fixed-function um, data plane designs had been sort of uh, decelerating the innovations in the networking industry. And for example, you probably are very familiar with the VXLAN protocols. And then when it was first proposed by a few people, um, uh, I think it was like late 2010 or nine or something like that. And then uh, it took almost about four or five years until or before you actually get the hardware implementation of VXLAN. Right. Right. And and, and, and that was even designed to be a, a subset of Lisp, as I understand it, so that they had to make as, as few uh, changes as, as possible to right. uh, the, the, the Cisco hardware, right. at least. Exactly. So that's the situation where we are. And, and presumably, VXLAN was one of the most important protocols for the networking industry at that time because... You know, software-defined networking was about to sort of uh, explode at that time. Everybody had vested interest making that happen very quickly. And yet it took five years. Right. Whereas if you could implement, how long did it take for you to actually implement VXLAN protocol in your OVS implementation in software switch? Uh, well, uh, you know, the, the initial implementation, uh, uh, I, I believe I made a copy of a file and changed a few constants and things. Yeah. Uh, um, and, and that wasn't the final implementation, but it worked. And yeah. uh, the, the, the political part is always harder than the technical part yeah. at, at that level. Yeah. So that's the difference between software velocity versus hardware velocity and what we what we're observing right now is that finally the the um, networking hardware industry at an inflection point where they can actually build fully programmable and yet you know multi-terabps full line rate uh, network data plane ASICs so once you have this kind of ASICs then how are you going to let people program these ASICs that's where the P4 language is uh, kicking in. And uh, we're trying to build the whole ecosystem about this hardware uh, architecture called PISA, Protocol Independent Switch Architecture, and the P4 language as a combo. Right. So uh, at, at the point where you've got a flexible language, yep. suddenly you have this, uh, this opportunity to uh, make exciting changes and do experiments. Yep. And uh, what we're planning to talk about today is INT, yep. uh, which is, I think, one of the uh, exciting early yes. uh, results of these yes. experiments. Yes. Do you want to, uh, to just lead off on what INT is? Yes, definitely. So I usually, when I introduce INT, I used to say that this is just a low-hanging fruit that got mature ripened because of the data plane telemet or sorry data plane programmability that we're observing here, 
And it's actually a very juicy fruit uh, because it opens up a lot of possibilities and then uh, removes a lot of pain points that network operators or even distributed system owners suffer from today. First of all, INT stands for in-band network telemetry. So as you can easily imagine, this is a uh, network monitoring and analysis uh, technology. And um, the, the reason we call this in-band is because uh, we're actually recruiting the data packets, original data packets, as log packets for themselves. So when when switches in the network for data, you know, this uh, data packets L at multi, you know, terabps line rates, um, they can actually embed all the necessary information that are uh, important to debug this, you know, networking behavior about these packets that are being forwarded into the the, the data packets themselves. So, so it's a, essentially a generalization of encapsulation technologies that we've been you know, talking about in various contexts. So yep. in other words, as the packets move through the network, you're, yep. you're actually uh, modifying them or, or annotating them to, to yep. indicate <clears throat> what, what happened to it as, it as it traveled through the network. Exactly. That, that's the in-band part. Yeah, yeah. And then that what happened part is um, almost everything. You can collect almost any information that happened to be locked inside a switch data plane. For example, uh, what was the exact... Uh, queuing latency that the packet has observed while you know being forwarded in the switch, which exact input port did it arrive at? Which output port did it go out? What was the queue depth that it observed? When it observed the queue or some queue buildup, which other packets shared the queue with? Uh, and and any any metadata, for example, arrival timestamp, departure timestamp, any metadata that is associated associated with the packet and then maintained within the switch data plane, now you can retrieve them at full line rate. Okay, so that's a, a pretty big wealth of possibilities. Yeah. So uh, if, we, if we pop up a level, uh, so what, what additional insight or what additional abilities does that give your, uh, your network administrators? What, what value does it, that's, uh, that's what does it represent? Question. So the, the in-band part uh, is how part and uh, what matters is what kind of benefits does it actually introduce. So uh, I used to give, usually give these four examples as critical benefits. Uh, when you run a large-scale network or relatively you know, large network, you really want to know exactly what is happening to every flow or every packet that you're delivering through this network. Today, for example, even a really simple question like, okay, here is my packet. I want to understand what happened to this packet which exact path did it take? Which sequence of switches did it touch? Uh, and how long did it actually spend at every switch it went through? And then uh, did it actually experience any queuing latency, any unexpected latency beyond just the propagation latency, link speed? If yes, why? Right. So answering all these questions are now possible because you, you literally can keep monitoring every single packet and its behavior. Are, yeah. are there are, are there provisions or are, are there uh, the, the the possibility of uh, keeping keeping this data for a, a broad range of packets over over time? Are are, are these the the sorts of things where uh, people will eventually pull up a console and 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 show uh, what, what what's happening uh, uh, to their to their network over the last I don't know days. Yeah. Uh, uh, even even weeks and, and and so on or uh, 
or is it more of a like a, a real time kind of thing, or are all these the possibilities? I, I think all these are possible. For example, um, the fact that you can monitor every single packet doesn't necessarily mean that you have to monitor every single packet. So you can decide to monitor some particular flows that you want to understand very carefully. Because, for example, I'm running a network for an enterprise, and some some internal customers of mine, some applications that we're hosting, uh, say that my my applications are somehow suffering. I believe that this is a network problem. Can you prove or disprove me, my conjecture? Then you can you you know their addresses or their port numbers, some sort of identifiers that uniquely define these applications flows, enable INT for those flows, and then get the real time information about all these flows. For example, am I actually keeping the right or guaranteeing the right end-to-end latency for these flows? Am I observing some unexpected f- number of flows from these applications? Or are they actually going through the right path through which I wanted to deliver these flows correctly? Or aren't they actually blocked somewhere in my network by unexpected routing behavior or access control policies that I didn't know about? All these things you can actually collect and then show. But at the same time, another really nice thing about these technologies is that now um, you can apply this INT mechanism to every single packet without worrying about the actual monitoring cost inside the inside switch. So you can actually enable this for every packet. So that that allows you to discover the problem uh, even when you don't even realize that the, the problem is almost about to happen, right? Um, and um, so in that case. You, although you can actually, your switches can monitor every single packet, you do actually have to worry about the, the report cost or the export cost because uh, if you really end up generating a report for every single packet that is monitored by the switch, you're essentially doubling the amount of traffic within the network. So that's not going to be quite scalable from the network point of view as well as for your you know, back-end big data processing systems point of view. So you do have to introduce some sort of intelligent suppression mechanisms uh, in the switches. So when, for example, INT works, we introduce a few different roles in the switches. So the first up that introduces this INT instruction header into the packets is called INT source. And then the intermediate hub switches are called INT transit because they just simply add their own metadata information. And then the last hub switch, which actually collects this information and then undo all the changes that are made to this packet, is called INT sync. And the, this INT sync device can be a, a real actual physical switch at the last stop, for example, a top of rack switch, or it could be a smart NIC, or it could be end host networking stack, or a software switch like OVS. But when, when this last up INT sync retrieves these packets and then collects all this information about incoming packets, it has to undo all the changes, but at the same time, it has to monitor whether there are some, uh, some kind of events that are worthy of reporting. For example, um, when you see lots of flows, you probably don't want to generate report for every single packet. You probably want to generate report for the first packet of a new flow or even for the existing flows, you probably want to generate report only when some some problems happen to the flows. For example, the flows physical path have changed for whatever reason, or the f- 
flows end-to-end -end latency have significantly changed because congestion happened or the congestion has gone away like that. So you can introduce this kind of intelligent suppression mechanisms at the INT sync. And uh, in, in this situation, what is really nice is that use all the switches still keep monitoring every packet, but you can significantly reduce the amount of reports generated by these uh, INT capabilities. Wow, that's a lot. Uh, so uh, we've we've covered uh, the, the the low level types of things that you can monitor. We've covered the high level benefits, and and now you've uh, talked a lot about uh, um, how how it actually works in in the network. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I guess one thing that that we haven't really mentioned is uh, how how this actually gets integrated into the packets. If you look at the usual format of say an IP packet, there mm -hmm. there aren't too many places to. Uh, to shove in this ex uh, this fairly extensive metadata. So, mm -hmm. so what's the way that, that you typically do that? That's a great question. And by the way, this is exactly why data plane telemetry allows people to introduce INT a lot more easily. Because, um, as you mentioned, it's it's not easy to borrow some of the existing fields. And and in fact, we need more than a few bits to be able to add this kind of useful information. So, what what, we'll, what actually would be the, the typical size that you that you want to add at each hop? So, for example, if you want to collect, say, switch ID from every hop, and then input port, up port, switch ID will be probably about two bytes, four bytes, depending on your network size. Input port, output port probably will need, say, another two bytes each. If you want to collect arrival timestamp departure timestamp at, say, nanosecond granularity, then each of these will probably need four bytes. So in, in total, we were expecting that people will probably want to collect about, say, 16 or 20 bytes of information from every hub. Okay, so that's a significant amount. Usually when people find some place to shove bits into a packet, you're talking, uh, I don't know, three bits, eight bits. Yep. Uh, th th this clearly needs something that, that's yep. more extensive if, you're, yep. if you've got three or four hops and 16 bytes each. Exactly, yeah. So um, the question is, where are we going to put these additional bytes? There are various options. For example, if you're already using, say, VXLAN for your network virtualization, VXLAN can now take some options. I believe there is an extension protocol called VXLAN GPE right, that right. can also be useful to add this kind of uh, additional number of bytes. Other encapsulation protocols such as Geneve or NSH have similar capabilities these days. But even if you don't, use, say, network virtualization protocols, you can still introduce new types of headers, especially if you have, you know, uh, these programmable data plane technologies and P4. So it, in, in, in Barefoot, we have actually prototyped this with many, many different encapsulation formats. For example, we support INT over MPLS, INT over Ethernet, INT over VXLAN GP, over NSH, over Geneve, over uh, even what we call L4, meaning that INT actually comes after TCP or UDP header. And then uh, it's fine because the INT sync will remove this header, INT portion again, and then convert the original packets back to its original format. So the end host applications or end host stack still continue to work fine. So in a traditional ASIC-based switch, that list that you gave me would be really intimidating. But I suspect that for P4 and Barefoot, it's just a matter of changing a few lines of code. Exactly. Yeah. It's just another P4 program, which is typically, say, a few hundreds of P4 lines. That's all. 
All right. So that's how you do it if you've got, um, say, an all P4 switch-based network. Mm -hmm. But uh, my guess is that a a lot of places won't want to do uh, wholesale forklift replacements of everything. So is there a way to integrate this with existing uh, legacy switches? How does that work out? Oh, definitely, yeah. So, by the way, INT can be implemented in fixed-function ASICs as well, as long as this networking industry can agree on the nice encapsulation formats and I. INT instruction headers and so on. So, and in fact, that's what is happening in the industry. So P4 just happens to uh, make us implement INT more quickly and then validate it. But the, the, the tie between P4 and INT is not that strong. And second question is, what if you have legacy switches that do not even understand this new INT protocol at all? It just does IP routing, and, and, well, L2, L3 switching, that's all. So then uh, you can still use this encapsulation protocols conveniently. For example, if you use VXLAN GPE uh, to carry INT options, uh, the, the legacy switches will still be able to forward these packets based on the outer IP header and outer UDP header. So those are still there. And then VXLAN GPE and INT portion comes after outer UDP. So the you know ECMP lag regular you know L3 forwarding all those things will continue to work and L2 of course will work because that depends on just outer Ethernet addresses. To move a little little higher up in the yep. in, in the discussion, um, I, I've talked to you about uh, INT and I've, I've seen uh, Nick McEwen give uh, uh, presentations about it and I I know there are uh, some folks at at VMware who are are interested in in, in working. Uh, on things related to it. Um, is, is there a, a bigger community around INT that, that, that's forming? I, ideally, you'd want this sort of thing to be kind of an industry-wide initiative. Oh, definitely, yes. So we that's exactly why we uh, open-sourced the INT specification that we happen to implement. Uh, and the nice thing about P4 is that you, this spec actually has a program, not just you know the human language-based descriptions of the way people or the, the protocol is defined. So you can uh, look at it and then uh, get a clear understanding on how it actually works. And you can even test that if you have, say, P4 switches or P4 software switches. Um, we have contributed this back to the P4 language consortium. And I know that P4 language consortium is also expanding to create a new working group, maybe called P4 applications working group. So this may be a, one of the early contributions to that working group. At the same time, we're also working with a few industry partners. So INT, for example, uh, can be very useful for you know virtual switch owners or anybody who runs virtual and physical network together. Because in in that situation, typically I the virtual the first hop and last hop will be virtual switches, and then the intermediate hops INT transits are probably going to be physical switches. So that interoperability is an important issue. So we are starting to communicate these INT formats with you know, uh, software switch vendors like UBAN <laughs> or uh, SmartNIC solution vendors and so on. Uh, and um, we are also uh, you know, collecting inputs about the report format. So when you retrieve INT information at the last stop, INT sync, how are you going to report noteworthy events along with the actual uh, INT metadata, raw INT metadata collected through the packets. So that report format specification uh, is being formed by a few you know, industry uh, collaborators, and we would love to contribute those kind of things back to the community. 
I also know that ITF is very interested in this, so they have a new working group called IOAM, uh, and we are working with uh, uh, the, the, the participants in that working group as well. Oh, I, I didn't know about that. Yeah. That's good information. Um, so uh, obviously, it would be great if OVS could act as a as a source and a sink, and, and perhaps and probably a, a transit switch mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And I know that we're planning to have a, a more detailed uh, um, meeting about that later. Mm-hmm. But at, at a high level, what what would the requirements be? What would I, uh, OVS ideally do? So uh, it depends on what kind of smart and intelligent suppression mechanisms and capabilities you want to implement in OBS. So there are very cheap stateless suppressions. Uh, for example, what, what if you collect INT information only from the packets that has, say, TCP SYN flag on because it's going to be the first packet or the first few packets of these connections? Or you can do the same thing with you know, TCP reset or fin flags. Uh, you can also do that when, for example, you, you're a network admin and then you're willing to borrow a particular you know, TOS bit or TOS value to indicate that, hey, I want to apply INT to these kind of packets because I want to debug their behavior, and then let the sync device generate reports uh, for packets that carry this special TOS bit or byte value as well. Um, or uh, even simpler thing is just echo-like approach. You define you know five tuple values, and then every time you see packets matching this five tuple and has INT information, you can generate report for those kind of packets as well. But more important and powerful suppression will probably come in when you actually implement stateful suppression, meaning that you actually track the uh, the the flows existing flows state so that you can realize, oh, this is a new flow that I've never seen, so it's worthy of reporting uh, uh, an INT information of the first packet of that new flow. Or I've been tracking these flows, but their path or latency, end-to-end latency, have significantly changed it, so I'm going to report this so that the rest are not actually reported but still monitored. Is is there a, a, a standard uh, for how the reports are sent and what format they have? It, it seems like a, a lot of the value is in the reports. Yeah, yeah. So the report format specification is being sort of uh, developed by a few industry contributors working with us, and then we're one of the participants. So we'll be happy to share that probably initially through, uh, I don't know, maybe P4 language consortium, because expressing this in P4 is always... You know, cleaner and unambiguous. Um, yeah, and and uh, the semantics of this suppression is uh, it, it again this this it's beyond the format, but we'll be happy to you know collaborate with industry partners like you. And uh, again, P four will allow us to express this standard semantics as well because it's the data plane logic, so that's unambiguous. Yeah. My guess is that network and data center administrators are clamoring for this kind of information, but it seems like they've probably been asking for it for a long time. Uh, do you have an idea why it's uh, really just starting to uh, um, to to be available now? Why why now? Yeah, that's uh, a great question. Why not ten so, years ago? Yeah, <laughs> certainly this data plane programmability opens this kind of creative or the possibility of this kind of creative thinking. People are now much less concerned about introducing new options in the headers and then inc- sort of introducing different capabilities. So that 
that's one factor, uh, maybe not direct, but some, some indirect factor. Um, another reason why this is happening is because um, in data centers, as you probably know very well, you own a lot more things. The data center network owner can uh, dictate almost everything end to end. So they can, in, they are much more willing to introduce new protocols and then achieve the benefits end to end. So that's another motivation. And uh, another, maybe one last thing is that this INT-like technology allows you to monitor a lot of things, but even if you do suppress, it still can be a, a huge amount of information. For example, as I said, modern you know, high-end switching chips can handle, say, billions, say, five billion packets a second. Even if you uh, generate report for, say, you know, 0.01% uh, of that traffic volume, it's still like 100K reports per second. And then if you have uh, hundreds of such switches in your network, you really need to have big data processing system that can handle, I don't know, millions or tens of millions of reports per second. So that kind of technology has been considered previously right, prohibitively expensive. Nowadays, you can actually build a relatively cheap uh, big data processing cluster with, I don't know, some 10 or 20 high-end servers. And then you can actually ingest this kind of information and then draw meaningful information almost near real time. So that also opens a possibility for this kind of fine-grained data plane telemetry uh, capabilities. So uh, a, a few things have, have come together recently that, uh, that, that make the, the whole thing uh, more, more feasible. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, INT seems like it's, uh, sort of one of what might be a, a, a wide range of, of new capabilities for troubleshooting and, and, and debugging that, that would uh, become possible, uh, with, uh, more programmable data planes. Um, are there, are there other things that are coming down the pike that, uh, um, I don't know, maybe some of them are just, uh, a pie in the sky ideas. So what, what are your thoughts about, uh, other things that, that might come up? Yeah, that, that's a great question. Actually, that reminds me of one of the most um, common questions that I receive whenever I talk about INT. So people say that, yeah, INT is great. You, you use the packets as log for themselves. But what if you lose the packets inside the network as well? Then you lose all the you know, critical information associated with the packet. Uh, so that's a great question. So that's why when you enable uh, INT, it's usually very helpful to enable you know, an associated technology called, say, report on drop. So modern ASICs can actually, uh, when, when these ASICs decide to drop packets for many reasons, say routing table mismatch or an echo match, which says that this packet has to be dropped or maybe even congestion drop, like tail drops, these switches actually have capability to create a clone or mirror copy of these dropped packets and then send these packets to somewhere else. So if you enable this kind of technology with INT, then when a packet that carries INT information is dropped, you can actually generate a report from the switch where the packet got dropped. And then at least all the way up to that dropped point, you have the actual INT information. So that allows you to debug uh, issues related with losses, packet losses very easily as well. Another, uh, maybe a variation of INT technology uh, that that is, again, uh, enabled by data plane programmability is something what we call postcard uh, approach. 
So imagine that um, instead of changing the original data package to embed its own log information, you can assume that every single hop in the network actually works as int source slash sync at the same time. So they receive this switch receives packets and then uh, generates special int kind of reports, but it also sends out the uh, the packets without any modification because only internally you add int header and then conceptually you remove the int header again and then uh, based on the int information within that hub you can actually generate or decide to generate reports about the packets or not so if you do run this kind of mechanism called postcard every single hub works independently and you don't need to worry about the um, the interrupt issues associated with modifying the original packets, and yet you can still collect a significant amount of information. Semantically, it's slightly weaker than INT because the, the report generation at different hops cannot be exactly synchronized. So you, for example, when you receive reports uh, for one flow, there is no guarantee that all these reports are triggered by exactly the same packets. They may be different packets within the same flow. So that, that lowers uh, capability slightly, but it's still quite useful. So all these kind of uh, new ideas are now you know, much more easily accessible thanks to P4 and PISA-like architecture, I would say. Those all sound like exciting possibilities too. Uh, so uh, let's see. We, we've talked a lot about uh, uh, where, we, uh, where we came from and, and where we're going. Um, so uh, is, there, is there anything that, that we've missed that's, uh, um, that, that, we should, uh, that, that we should go into? Anything else you want to uh, uh, cover? Um, no, I think we covered most of the important topics. Um, uh, the P4 Language Consortium is completely open source-based, um, free of charge, uh, voluntary working group-based uh, uh, organization. So feel free to join that work you know uh, consortium or the working group discussions to you know to actually participate in in the uh, the, sh the, the the industry shaping practices of around these data plane telemetry uh, technologies and um, uh, what else so I, I know yeah. that there's a um, there's a language design working group yeah. and there's a architecture working group uh, you're, you're talking about uh, that, that INT is part of a of, of a forming uh, applications working group yeah exactly so um, uh, yeah the the uh, p4 language consortium uh, board members decide to create a new working group called apps working group and then it seems like telemetry is something that everybody wants to understand more precisely and then realize very quickly. So telemetry is probably going to be the first main focus of that working group. And, and what's the right place for people to go if they're interested in, in that working group? Is p4.org the right place to start? Yes, yes. And then I presume they'll probably announce this widely, uh, basically the core for participation or solicitation to the working group. And uh, my, my understanding is that those working groups generally, uh, they, they have in-person meetings, but it's also possible to in, in attend remotely over the phone. Yeah, sure, sure. Yes. So people shouldn't hesitate to get involved if they're, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, if they're interested. Yeah. And then um, uh, being a language consortium, uh, probably this working group will uh, encourage code sharing and testing aspects a lot rather than, you know, uh, 
trying to derive one common format or something like that. It's it's more about sharing different ideas, all the possibilities, and then let's you know encourage them to bring out all these cool ideas in public fora and and share the actual working code. That's that's the spirit of this kind of working group. Right, yeah. and I, I don't think that uh, people who are working on platforms that don't directly compile P4 should feel too left out because the the, the language and and the the implementation uh, or the the source code is is useful as a as a exactly. good specification yeah, yeah, even uh, e- even when you aren't directly running it. Exactly. So human language based description plus machine language based code, these together actually give you a perfect sense on what is actually happening inside the data plane. Great. Uh, well, I, th- I think that's a, a pretty good note on which to uh, to wrap up unless you want to add anything more. No, I think it's, uh, it's good. It's an exciting time to be able to collect a lot more information from the network and it'll be helpful for, you know, software-defined networking and as, as well as, you know, uh, physical networking domains as well. All right. Uh, thank you. And I'm, I'm hoping to uh, get some uh, INT and P4 support into OVS before too much longer. Thank you, Ben. All right. Uh, you're welcome. OVS Orbit is edited and produced by Ben Pfaff using Audacity audio editing software and released under the Creative Commons unported 3.0 license. The intro and bumper music in this episode is excerpted from Electro Deluxe by My Free Mickey and the outro from Girls Like You by Stefan Kartenberg, both under the Creative Commons attribution unported 3.0 license. For more episodes of OVS Orbit, visit ovsorbit.org or for more information about OpenVSwitch, visit openvswitch.org.